And here we are, another episode. Y'all have heard my guest today on the show a couple times before. Everybody knows he's one of my favorite songwriters of all time. And the consensus is most country music artists that I talk to in Nashville and around the country, Texas included, feel the same exact way. Chris Knight is back on the show today. Again, another episode brought to you by the one and only Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey, Jack Daniels. Enjoy it responsibly. Never allow underage drinking. Thank you, Jack Daniels, for supporting everything that we do here at This Life Ain't For Everybody. I've enjoyed a couple fingers of Jack Daniels listening to Chris Knight's song. Chris, welcome back, my friend. Thank you. Good to be here. How are you? I'm doing good. When you were um, walking that convention floor, do you enjoy the sights and sounds and the hustle and bustle of people in crowds at all or does it just take you a matter of seconds to be like this isn't for me uh <clears throat> probably both i mean i can't go to a bass pro shop you know just everything's just too much i mean i when the first time i ever went to bass pro i said how many turkey calls do you need <laughs> you know? and it's like you know i mean i just wanted to die for him call and i had to look for five minutes to even find them yeah you know, there were so many so many calls you know i don't know it's a little overwhelming for me kind of get uh, you have to get out of there for spending a bunch of money you know <laughs> do you do you like hanging with, do you hang with the boys? Do you, do you go down and, and, and shoot pool with the boys? Are you mainly a home buy? Like what, what is like an everyday situation for you? If you had to pick, do you like being around a group of people and hanging out in a crowd at all? No, no, nah, it's just not. I mean, you know, I mean, if I was 20 something years old, you know, uh, but I, I never was much of a partier. I mean, when I was younger, but uh, just really not, it ain't my thing, you know. And, and you know, when we're on the road, I mean, the show's over, we get the work done and we get back to the room. Every now and then we'll hang out in an empty bar, you know, after the crowd's uh, cleared out, drink a few beers or whatever. But most of the time, you know, we just, we just go. And you... Do you like the idea of loneliness? Like, do you like being alone more than you like being around the company of people? Now, I know that you have your kids and your family, but or do you like the downtime? Because a lot of people can't handle being alone. You know, they're afraid of it in, in a way. Like loneliness, like freaks people out to be in a room by themselves. They got to automatically reach for their phone. They got to have a TV with some background noise on. Do you like the idea of just being by yourself? Um, well, yeah, but I, you know, I can't just do it all the time. You know, I gotta, and I like being on the road and playing for the crowds and, uh, you know, meeting a few people and, you know, we, we'd always have the merch table, but this, <clears throat> we still have the merch table, but I haven't, uh, been to the merch table since March 15th of 2020, you know, and I have, you know, uh, hadn't had near as many shows either, but uh, I just, uh, just haven't went back out there, but you know, I, I, I got better at being around people after the shows as time went on, but I wasn't very good at it when we started, you know. Uh, when I when I started selling merch and things, you know, uh, I just, I don't know. I mean, it kind of, I've always kind of been, uh, I wouldn't say a loner, but it just didn't bother me that much to be by myself, you know. You know, I love my family and everything, and you know, and I had a few, a few good friends, 
you know, like in the early, early 80s and stuff, you know, and at college, I mean, I found some friends and I'd party with them and things like that, but just wasn't something that I had to be doing all the time. Do you do you think that you kind of got that way because of what you experienced when you came to Nashville in the very early stages of your career? You were here for a minute. We are we are recording this podcast in the Nashville Palace in Nashville, Tennessee. You came here in the late nineties and were a songwriter from Kentucky. Yeah, it's actually uh early nineties I signed a deal, a writing deal in ninety four. So, and I've been coming down here for a couple of years. Did you enjoy coming down here? Because at that time, 30 years ago, like you're, you're in your thirties and, or you're in your late twenties or, you know, early thirties at the time. Did you enjoy the city? Cause I enjoy Nashville and I know that it's a lot different now than it was back then. It's grown up a lot. It's probably too busy now. Touristy. I mean, there's more bachelorette parties here than any other city in America now on a weekly basis. So mm-hmm. did you enjoy it back then coming to Nashville? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I came, I'd come down here and stay for uh, two or three days and came down here a lot and was co-writing and going out on the town. You know, me and Frank, we did a lot of, closed a lot of bars down, me and Frank Liddell, uh, and had a group of people that I hung out with, songwriters, you know, there were certain clubs that you'd go to and you'd know a bunch of songwriters who were in there, you know, and it was fun and and we'd play. And uh, as time went on, you know, it just, I, everything gets a little old, you know. But uh, I hadn't hung out down here in a long time. When you look back, like I'm in my mid forties. And there's a lot of things that I wish I would have held on to more like the memories I have, but that's life. It just keeps, you, you can't mm-hmm. slow down the hand of time. And yeah. a lot of your songs reflect this in, in memories and writing stories and, and the way that you paint pictures are vivid. Well, I like the idea of having vivid memories to lean back on. Is there anything that you look back on that you wish you would have held on to more, even though you've written it down and you have this storied songwriting career. Do you look back at those days in Nashville when you're in your twenties and thirties and wish, man, I wish I would have did it a little bit different. Is there any kind of a thought process like that? There's things I could have done different, but as far as wishing that I had about, I don't know. I mean, I've done a few things I wish I hadn't done and, uh, you know, uh, but I just, I wasn't, uh, I never worried about stuff like that, you know. I just, I knew what I was going to do, you know, and I just did it. And I also knew that uh, I wasn't going to be a big, huge star, but I knew that I, could have a career, you know, it was just building and everything, you know, building on a career and uh, building on a fan base, getting a body of work together that'll help you down the road, you know, having almost 30 years of, of work behind you, you know, helps out a whole lot and things like that. But, uh, I couldn't have done it. I I don't think I could have done anything different. Do you did you have people in your ear all the time, like maybe Frank that were telling you, "Hey, you need to do this different," or like management that was trying to get you to live your life a different way? Like there's there's some you know Shooter Jennings lyrics with the George Jones song that he did about, and Aaron Lewis also sang about how they want you to change your whole appearance. They want you to change who you hang out with. They want kind of like control your life. Did, was that going on to where, or did you just shut all that out? No, nobody ever said anything to me about moving to Nashville. You know, as a matter of fact, Frank made the remark. He didn't, he thought I shouldn't move to Nashville, you know, because of the perspective that I got from being at home and, 
and <clears throat> not coming down here and joining the hustle and bustle of writing every day, all day long, and all that kind of thing. You know, I wrote when I wanted to, wrote what I wanted to write about. But, I mean, I did, you know, it. there's certain things that you do that uh, don't work out, you know. There might be a label situation or a publishing situation that things don't work out, you know, they've, put too much money into you and you're not doing what they think you ought to be doing. So that ends. And I mean, you know, I've had publishing deals in like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, basically everybody that I've worked with, they haven't wanted me to be part of the, they hadn't wanted me to be part of the Nashville scene, really. Just kind of do. But there is things I could have done, but I don't regret not doing. Do you, when you think about like being a songwriter, you know, some people's goal is to get that big hit. There's radio guys out there that can take a song written by Chris Knight. It becomes a number one hit radio. And then you get what they call mailbox money for the rest of your life as that song continues to climb the charts and gets as many spins in rotation as possible. And I'm, and I might be saying something that's way dumb here, but I don't know if there's anybody that can do your songs the way that you do them. Did you ever intentionally write songs to where you weren't going to put them on a record first? Because I don't think that somebody could hear a song like, let's just pick the, the most, the most, you know, obvious one. It ain't easy being me. It's been covered, but it's never been done the way it was done on your album in 97, the Chris Knight self-entitled Chris Knight album. Like, did that ever, like, resonate with you? Like, man, I'm, people aren't can't do my songs after they hear them. They're, like, intimidated almost, I think. Like, nobody can do a lot of the songs that you wrote because you did them so good <clears throat> that were you ever looking for that radio hit? Did you ever intentionally say, I'm just going to write this and not put it out there and hope that it climbs the charts with somebody else? I've tried to do that, but it never did really work out, you know. I mean, anytime I tried to do a commercial or an album that where we were intentionally trying to get a radio song, it never worked out. And those were the weakest songs on the record, you know. Uh, the ones that I kind of forced because it, they had a commercial sound. But Can you give me an example? No, I don't. Not one off your hand. You won't tell. You won't say the names. No. Is it because you're ashamed of them? No, it's just that they're they could be. I mean, I could do any of them on stage, you know. But as far as a set list, I want to do my best songs. I mean, it's like. You know, you got a certain song on an album and the record company, whatever, we need to put out this a video for this and we need to have a bunch of college kids in a bar just singing along and all that kind of thing to do this video. And I'm like, I got an idea. Why don't we do a video of the best song on the record? You know, yeah. instead of picking something that sounds kind of like a radio song but deep down I mean I knew it, that it wasn't you know uh, when that record came out in the, the 97 that was there was several songs on there that would in my opinion be radio smashes at that time maybe even a little earlier than that maybe the late 80s early 90s when they were pushing a song to radio did <clears throat> was it just like it it kind of just falls off is the right amount of money and promotion, not behind it. But I guess in, in simple terms, why doesn't framed or, or it ain't easy being me. Why doesn't it become a number one smash hit? Why didn't it? Because they, they, they are radio worthy. 
and they're not, you might not be your favorite songs of all time, but they're a lot of your fan base's favorite songs of all time. That album is a lot of your fans' favorite album of all time. Why didn't they early in your career? Because that could have like changed the path, in my opinion, of your entire career if those songs would have been heard the way they were, like they should have been heard by the masses, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, people like the song, but not everybody liked the song. You know, I don't think the mainstream. Some of them, some mainstream listeners, I'm sure, like my music, but you know, a lot of the people who are looking for something else and not just top 40 radio, you know, one of the coolest things I heard somebody say to me one night at the merch table was, you know, my two favorite artists is you as a Kenny Chesney and you. And I thought <laughs> that's pretty cool. But I got to tell you, I heard Ain't Easy Being Me back when it first came out, right behind the Kenny Chesney song. And it like stuck out like a, a sore thumb, you know? Yeah. It just, to me, it just, it, that wasn't a good segue from a Kenny Chesney song. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, for sure. It just didn't, not that it didn't stack up, it just wasn't recorded the same and it wasn't, uh, didn't sound the same. So you hear something, it's, it was like, or maybe it was just me hearing myself on the radio and cringing, you know. Just hearing my own voice. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I, I understand that you would be critical of yourself, but that song right now, speaking of, the, you know, It Ain't Easy Being Me, that could be a number one hit. Well, today. yeah, I mean, it's like uh, <clears throat> somebody's telling me that's listening to a, a radio show with Garth Brooks on it. Garth Brooks, he, he, uh, mentioned that song and but he he uh and it would have been a good great time for him to record the song you know because i think he was going through some stuff and uh anyway he he never did record it but he i heard from my label that he walked into the label that i was on and Went in talking, went in to the boss's office and sat down and recited that song from start to finish. And I'm like, damn, Garth, record that song, man. Why, why did he? You have I any idea? Know. I don't know. He, he just didn't. But anyway, I mean, that's that's fine. It's just, uh, you know, I, I thought. I could just come down and be a songwriter, you know, and other people would record my songs. But, uh, you know, I've had some pretty good cuts. Wait a minute. So was this song already on your self-entitled album? It was already Garth, there. Yeah, was... it was several years later. Well, it's because he didn't, it couldn't matter. There's like, nobody can do it the way you did it. It had to be something to do with why would they try to, to put that on the radio when the original is so much better? Like they can't make the song better, but that was my question to you is like, you turned off money. You let money go out the window because your stuff was so good. The way that you sang it and presented it to the world well, that when, when somebody else goes, these are the best lyrics I've ever heard, but how can I match what he already did with it? Yeah. That, it, it was recorded by a big name artist at one time, a big name artist. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Two. And it was nowhere near the same. No, it didn't hit the same. John John Anderson recorded it, and Blake Shelton recorded yep, that both song. Of them did. Yeah, both did. And when Blake did it, everybody's like, "Oh, this is going to be amazing," and the lyrics are there. But it what it did not hit like you intended it when you put it out there. I just think that a lot of that would uh, that would stop the success of a song is because it was nowhere near what you did with it. If that makes sense to you, that's how I feel about. It. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know how the songwriting world works 100%, but I do know that there, I don't know of anybody that's a songwriter that put that song out 
And then somebody bigger than that songwriter ended up putting it on a bigger album later on. Maybe you do know an example of this, but like the originals that you did, how can they top that is what my question would be. Like it had to be why Garth didn't do it back in the day because he had to be a little bit intimidated because if he loved the song, why wouldn't he? Why yeah, wouldn't he? I, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, well, I mean, just like, uh, she couldn't change me. Montgomery Gentry recorded that and they did a great job. Uh, it was just one of them things, you know. I mean, it was taken to the studio while they was in the studio and and Eddie said, I'll sing it. And But had you put it out already? I had never put it out. We'd just written a song. We yeah, well, that's put up, I mean, made a homemade di video. I mean, a homemade recording of it and then they took it the next day to the are you a fan Gentry. of Are you fan of their library? Yeah, I've, I've heard a bunch of. Do stuff you agree always. that that's their best song of all time? It's their I best song. Know. Oh, come on, Chris! That song is amazing. Like that whole idea of her leaving and coming yeah. back, and yeah, and, but see, I couldn't have made it a hit. But, the, but my I know that that uh, Troy Gentry, he was supposed to get a song. But he he didn't want to record that song. But it it's like okay, that just that's one of those things that happened. It was magic that Eddie Montgomery recorded that song because I feel like he may have been the only one that could have made a hit out of it. It was just his personality and the way that he sings. He was singing that song, you know, and uh, the attitude that he had. It wasn't like a it was just a laid back guy singing that song and like, yeah, I knew she'd come back, you I, know. That song when it came out, I don't know, was it 01, 02, 03, somewhere in there they yeah. released it. We, I listened to it every day. And to know that, you know, you wrote the song, but you never put it out. I think that has a big part to do with it because there was no, like, are we up against something here? Like what are we, you're up against a monster. If you try to redo it, ain't easy being me or frame the way you did. there's nobody that could do frame the way you did it and like it hit that hard and make it all come full circle like that. You're it, there's a little bit of arrogance in the song to me. When you sing it at the last verse, you got a little bit of arrogance when, you know, when you talk about what, you know, the conclusion was of what happened to him, like that song, I don't think can be done in a way that we, people be like, Oh yeah. That's how it was meant to be. The way that Chris did it, you know, that was way off. You wrote it, but you should have never put it. No, you did it the best it could be. That I'm just, uh, I'm floored that those kind of songs can't become radio gold in a, in a world that needs to hear lyrics like that. Like to say it's not commercially successful or it doesn't have the a possibility of commercial success. I just want to know who is pushing that button. Who's making that call? It's not the listener. It can't be the listener. Now, in today's world of country music, because it's changed so much and transitioned into this pop world, a lot of pop and country music now, yeah, your your music should be coming back to bring back country music. Like, it should be on the radio to say, this has been here. It should be, and it could be the savior, you know? It could be the revival that everybody talks about. Stapleton's there. He's got an unbelievable voice. Gets very <laughs> little radio support. Doesn't get a buddy sells out arenas because he's so gifted yeah but that music is so good and i don't understand how somebody could say nah that's not commercial that just i, I wish i'd have been in those meetings back in the late 90s of like what do you mean they're not commercial like how can you say that the thunder rolls is a, com a commercial successful song when it ain't easy being me what's the difference like the thunder rolls is a little bit more catchy maybe but the the way that you recorded it ain't easy being me or framed a lot of songs on that first album yeah. Should have been blown out of the water. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I want everybody to record all my songs, you know, but uh, I may, it's, it's just, it's, it's me that ain't commercial for sure, you know. I've, I don't, uh, I don't know that I've done anything different, you know, as far as I always wanted to write hit songs, you know, get them on radio. I don't care if it was a piece of shit as long as it was commercial. And 
and somebody would sing it and they'd play it on the radio. But I never could do that. I couldn't. So you wanted to write pieces of shit? I did. I, I mean, I thought, man, if I could just, I didn't want to write pieces of shit, but I just wanted to write songs that they would play over and over again on the radio. You know, you just couldn't do it because your stuff I, was too good. I just, well, I couldn't do it. I couldn't write that way and make a song work, you know. And I've written with people that could, you know. And they could make, they could take any old idea and just turn it into this con commercial thing with a, with a, a hook, a catchy hook and a catchy melody and all that. But I never could. It's that some kind of thing that happens sometimes. And it seemed like, I think there's a lot of people that can do it just because they've done it so long. They just, they just do that thing with this, with maybe mundane lyrics, but when the chorus rolls around, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hit song, you know, it's a, it's the hooks good enough to, draw people in and, and and they play it on radio. Did you know you had that with She Couldn't Change Me? Or just you're saying it was I lucky? I it was a good song. It was great. Uh, uh, you know, we had a good time making that, that demo. I mean, we did it in Gary Nicholson's, in Gary Nicholson's house. And I really liked it. I mean, all I know is I played it a lot when I took it home. And it wasn't two days later I heard that Montgomery Gentry had recorded the song. So uh, I, I, I never, like, I always expect less but hope for more you know what i mean you know i was like i'm not gonna get my hopes up if this song doesn't do anything or doesn't make the album or whatever doesn't make single i mean i'm not gonna it ain't gonna really bum me out you know because i don't want to set myself up because in the songwriting world you get a you get a hold, you get holds all the time. You get holds and you think, boy, I hope they do this, but you don't want to get your hopes up because there's been, you'll say they'll call you up and say, so-and-so put this on hold or so-and-so's A&R guy put this on hold for them or their producer and then uh, nothing ever happens. You don't hear nothing else about it, you know, it never comes out, comes out. So that happens a lot too. That's why people write a bunch of songs, you know. Did you record almost every song you've ever written? No, I've got a bunch of songs I haven't recorded. Some of them ain't half bad, but they just, for some reason or other, you know, there's some reason I didn't record them. So is there a chance that your audience or your fan base will get to hear them on like another release of the trailer tapes or something? Possibly that if we just, you know, go through go through them and there might be some songs that I can just redo and sing them better than I did on the demo and, you know just make a thing out of it you know I think probably I mean me and my manager talk about doing something like that That'd be and, but I got project. a bunch of songs I haven't recorded how many would you th say how many songs do you think you've written in your career that's hard. Uh, I mean, I've recorded about 80 of them, I think. Some of them are duplicates on the trailer tapes. Yeah. But as far as the studio albums that I've done, I think I've got eight studio albums. 
You know, that's at least 10 songs on each album. So there's 80. And uh, I'd say I've written over 300 songs. What percentage of the 300 are 100% you as opposed to co-writes? Probably over half. I mean, you've written 150 songs by yourself, start to probably, finish. Probably, you know, yeah. I mean, I wrote 60 songs. After I wrote the first song that I'd ever play for anybody, you know, I wrote 60 songs over the next year. And, you know, and had maybe two keepers. Actually, I didn't write a keeper till I wrote If I Were You. And, but I've, I wrote some fairly good songs. But none of them really survived. Yeah. Is If I Were You your favorite song that you've ever written? Or can you pick one? Uh, probably not. Uh, I be hard to pick one. I mean, I think Hard Candy's pretty cool. Uh. And, uh, Old Man. Yeah, I, I like those songs. And, you know, I'll probably think of another one when we get done talking. But Is Rural Route on your list? Yeah, Rural Route. I, I like Rural Route a lot. Is that a, is that a co-write or is that all you? That's me. Every, see, every song I mentioned, there's a song I wrote by myself, you know. Wow. Becky's Bible, I thought that was real Great cool because I – I thought, well, I'll take his story and then I'll kind of pick the tempo up a little bit, you know, and, and put animals in it and, you know, and swamps and stuff like that, you know. And uh, and I tell a story on stage sometimes that, uh, you know, about I've probably written enough songs where somebody didn't survive the Live to the end of the song, and uh, so I had to come up with something else to write about. So I started writing about animals, and then I started naming off a few songs in the animals that I've written about, and the animals that are in my songs. And then a couple songs later, I'll remember another song, and I'll play it, and I'll say, and I'm uh, I'm pleasantly surprised that I've got. A, a snake and a mole in this song. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I wonder how many songs has got a mole in it. I want to talk about one song in particular, and I don't want to mess up the name, and you might have to help <clears> me <throat> because it's about your granddaddy's dirt. Um, dirt. Dirt. It was just called Dirt. I knew it was yeah. all that, but I want to make sure. Um, Like, this is a hit. Like, this song, this story is awesome about about – I mean, Chris Ledoux had recorded a song back in the day of the last drive-in. You know, the last drive-in's gone, and they're tearing yeah. it down. They're going to yeah. put up a Walmart or whatever, right? Well, this song is like a, a different level of complexity to that. Um, is this a personal vendetta against growth and 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 the country getting eaten up? Because I know that you love your bird dogs. I know that you love your quail. I know that you love your turkeys and nature and snakes and moles and all the things you write about. So was this like a personal vendetta when you sit down? Were you pissed off when you wrote that song? I, it was kind of coming from that perspective, but I mean, I've, I've, uh, I mean, at a certain point, I mean, when is enough enough, you know you know what I'm saying? I mean, when, uh, I mean, it's ain't none of my business. If somebody's buys a property, you know, it's not mine. They do, do what they want to. And people have to have jobs and things like that. And I've always been that way, but at a certain point, I mean, <clears throat> you're driving down the highway and, the city just keeps going on and on and on and they keep building the next thing you know there's a patch of you know a 20 acre patch of woods left and uh and or a 
50 acre patch of woods and they're gonna they're gonna build this uh shopping center and they're gonna call it quail run shopping center you know <laughs> it's like bullshit <laughs> you know they do it all the time it's like too. my god where are the quail gonna yeah. go now yeah i mean what there ain't gonna be no quail running in there when you put that big shopping center in there you know it was like in memory of the quail yeah. well they used to have this habitat but not anymore yeah, yeah it's like i've actually drug driven by a place and it was like the last 20 acres patch of woods and had a big sign out there coming soon such and such pizza you know it's like that's what, that's all we need is another pizza joint yeah you know so there was a little bit of animosity towards growth, even though you do have the mature bit, yeah. attitude of like, yeah, hey. well, I mean, I still, I'm still that way. I mean, that's why I, I think I've insulated myself pretty good. I've got woods all around me and enough to where, you know, I mean, I, I did it on purpose. It hurt to do it, but my neighbor across the road, you know, he was selling out and fixing to auction that property off, and I kept after him. And I told him, I said, you need to sell me that property. I've been out here for 20 years. And uh, he, I made him an offer, and they, they turned him and the auctioneer turned it down. Then I made him another one. And, of course, that got their attention. And then, but, of course, I paid more money because they, I said, well, if he'll pay this, he'll pay that, you know. So I ended up buying the other piece of property across the road. So, like, I'm right here. I live on a lane and a half road, and there's woods all all around me. And, you know, nearest neighbor is maybe three-tenths of a mile down the road. So if somebody came to you, on the other end of the spectrum and said, Hey, we want this is the, is the old adage of everything's for sale true in Chris Knight's brain when it comes to your land? Not at this point. No, it's, uh, you know, when I'm gone, my kids can do whatever they want to with it. But, uh, I basically bought that piece of property cause that, cause there's a real good building site right across the road. And I didn't want, to be seeing people when I was pulling, pulling out of my driveway or walked in the end of my driveway, and, you know, go down the road or whatever, and then meet meet the neighbors out there, you know. <laughs> that's just that's just me. I grew up in the woods. You couldn't see you couldn't see a house. <clears throat> it was four acres, and there's woods all around except in the front. It was just part of a big farm that we we uh, we owned four acres on there, and that's where I grew up. And couldn't hardly do the subdivision thing. I lived in a subdivision for five or six years when I was in Bowling Green. Uh, my dad, he worked for Texas Gas, and he got a a better job in in Bowling Green, and so uh, I went down there and went to college. And I, I got I got used to it. I got used to uh, enjoyed going to school down there and everything. Enjoyed Bowling Green, but it was a big culture shock for me, you know, to have somebody in the house right next door and right across the street and all that. So, what are your? You like to be in your world you like that privacy you've just said it you know that's why you have your property what with all of the hustle and bustle of a city like we're in right now and the stuff that happens when you have this many people on top of this many people and i know that you're i mean i'm like you like i got i'm tired of it man it like where i'm at it's just i went way out north of town where i live out in the west united states and then all of a sudden the town came way out north yeah. a decade later and 
you like you the, the attitude is you can't get mad at it because if it wasn't for you know growth and expansion we wouldn't get to do what we did out here but now that dirt is all gone um they're the infrastructure is weak because they let all these people move in there without improving the infrastructure and the roads and the highway system first and you want to get mad but you can't really get mad unless you're willing to go to work to make the change but do are you in support do you support you know things that make those decisions and i guess my question is like you have your city governments you have your city ordinances are are you an like you would think that through a lot of your lyrics like you're this outlaw that lives out and doesn't obey anything but i i assume becoming your friend that you support police and you support military and you support first responders and you that's the mentality that you have even though if you read your lyrics and you figure out like the way you've lived your life you almost got a little bit of outlawish to you like you're out there in this you obey chris knight's law book and that's it is that true or are you a law-abiding citizen even though the a lot of people be like man that dude's out there on his own doing his own freaking thing no i mean i I abide by the laws for the most part, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know but uh, no, nah, I mean, I've, I support, I know we got to have government and all that, but, you know, it's just, uh, well, I mean, just for instance, I mean, in the county where I live in, you know, the whoever, the fiscal court or whatever, you know, I mean, they wouldn't give the library any support, you know, tax dollars. It's like almost acting like the county library was, uh, or the city library was uh, uh, not worth having, you know, because I mean, uh, you know, kids go in there and they get books for free. They can bring books home with them. They can study. They get on computers and get access to things. But they wouldn't support them. They wouldn't give them any, any money. And that always seemed funny to me. And things like uh, uh, sports complexes for the kids, uh, you know, that, it's not that important in that county, you know, but uh, building a, another fast food restaurant is, though, so, you know, things like that and getting businesses, whatever kind of business it is, you know, they want them to come in. And, you know, it's also like on a federal level, people not seeing the worth in uh, – Public land, you know, uh, and, and you know somebody's always wanting to get their get hold of it and commercialize it, and you know, you know what I mean. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I watch it all. That's the time. that ain't right. I mean, it's that's not their land. You know, that's the people's land, and so. I don't know. I don't know enough about politics. I just try to followed it for a long time, but they're all that kind of thing just kind of makes me sick. But and I just, I just kind of, I've said, you know, well, I'm the president of my uh, 115 acres, and I don't give a shit what they do <laughs> as long as they stay off my 115 acres. Right. Are you? hear that in your songs you could hear that attitude in your songs but that's how it should be let me ask you this <clears throat> do you deflect compliments like when you hear somebody bragging on you do you deflect it because you don't want to hear it do you internalize it and you're grateful for it because i know that you don't take it for granted you can't with your attitude like the way that you write your songs and live your life i just i don't know you that well but i know that you can't you can't just take that for granted and be like oh, whatever you know i'm chris knight I don't, you're not like that today i bragged on you to people and michael waddell wanted to meet you he said will you please walk chris to my booth so i did he's a big fan brent cobb has already told me that you're one of the 
the best songwriters ever and that rural route made him cry every time he hears you sing it. He saw you live and it, and you've written with Brent since then. Um, but those army Rangers today that have been on 150 missions, halo jumping out of airplanes, 19,000 feet at night and doing these missions that me and you probably, I can't even fathom what they're doing. And that's what I told him today. But when the one, the younger gentleman today found out that it was you, he lost his mind. He's like, what? Like your songs have got me through so much. And I'm, you're on every radio station at the base. How does that make you feel inside? Cause you've heard it a lot. You get a lot of compliments from fans that want your autograph and they want your picture when they're at your merch booth and all that. Is it hit different when it's somebody that is serving us? I know that everybody is a fan and everybody has the right to your, you know, that to your library, they can hear it. But did that compliment hit different at all when it comes from somebody that, that is defended our freedoms and do you deflect it? And it just went in one ear and out the other. No, I don't deflect it. I mean, I, I appreciate hearing that. And you know, I, I, I like the fact that the, there's been a lot of military people that they tell me they're blasting Chris Knight when they go out on, you know, go out in their missions, yeah, on, on their missions and things like that, you know. And it's, uh, yeah, I appreciate it a lot, you know. But I mean, I a lot of times I don't know what to do, just do with it, you know. It's, it's uh. It's part of, it's a, like a perk of, you know, being a songwriter that people like your songs, you know. That's, that makes up for maybe, you know, uh, not being able to fill up five, 10,000 seat arenas and things like, like that, you know. That that helps to make up for things like that, just validation, you know. And I, uh, I don't know. I just there's so many uh, art. There's so many artists <clears throat> that I don't know the way the music game works, right? We I was with I introduced my friend Ben today, and he was talking to his booking agent when we were there. I can't imagine that every successful country music artist wouldn't want you on the bill to say, I like Cody Jinx got the perform of the and he was nervous walking up to your van to try to meet you. Cody Jinx is like probably the biggest name in Texas right now and selling out arenas in Texas all over. Yeah. Um, huge fan of yours, huge fan of yours. Um, I don't know what the rules are of like how you get your opening acts. Are you bigger than an opening act? If somebody came to you and said, Chris, I want you on this bill because of my utmost respect for you and I want to get your music out to my fan base. Is that in the, is, is that in the cards at all? Or do you look at that as like an insult? No, I've done it. I mean, I've, uh, I've, I've opened for a lot of, I've opened for people that used to open for me, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> I met Zach Brown. I mean, I've never opened for Zach, but I met him, and he was opening for us at Smith's Old Bar in, in Atlanta. And, you know, I mean, he, as far as I knew, he was just a guy with a band and uh, a Georgia Georgia boy, and they were going to do the opening show. And uh, and then, but we talked, and, you know, I thought he was a pretty cool guy. And, uh you know, next thing I know, well, there he is, you know, huge. And, you know, Tyler Childers, he, he, he owned a couple shows for me. And, you know, I, I went and opened a show for him out in Pikeville. And, uh, I mean, I don't do it on a regular basis. I mean, I actually told back in 2001, even, by the time I put a pretty good guy out, I was out just uh, with my guitar, just going and playing solo. And uh, I told my manager, you know, they were getting me on opening for this one and that one. And, you know, I mean, I opened, I opened for Leonard Skinner 15 shows, you know, and uh, some of them were just acoustic. Me and my guitar player in front of 
10,000 fans yelling, uh, free bird, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I've opened for a lot of acts, but then I, I did tell them, I said, I don't want to open for anybody else. I, I just want to do my own shows. I don't care if five people show up. I'm going to keep doing it till I'm, till I can build a fan base. And, uh, so that's what we did with pretty good guy, you know, got a, a band that stuck around and then we hit the road pretty good there and, uh, pretty much have been ever since. And it just grows and grows, but, uh, I'm not insulted by stuff like that. And there's people that I'll, I mean, I've opened quite a few shows for, for, uh, Turnpike Troubadours and, you know, way younger bands, you know, it's just stuff that I'll, I'll do occasionally. I don't want to make a living at it, but, you know. Do you, <clears throat> <clears throat> what would you describe the <clears throat> excuse me what would you describe the the current culture uh climate of your audience like describe to me i've never seen you live in texas describe to me the climate of a green hall or uh you know one of the historic places honky tonks that chris knight would play you're an honorary texan um you've been said by many Texans that you're their favorite songwriter, including Miranda Lambert, who's probably the biggest female act right now in the world. <laughs> one of them anyway, and has been for a decade at least. What is the climate? Like, what do you, when you walk into that place, do you know it's going to be rowdy? Is it a rowdy crowd? Is it a respectful crowd? Is it a quiet listening room type crowd? Is every ear on you, every song? How, how is it going Texas when you have that much fame down there? Uh, it's all of the above, you know. It can be a quiet listening crowd. It just depends on where I'm playing. I mean, I played loud bars before, but I've had a great time, and I could just, you know, you can get the energy off of the crowd. You can feel the. It's a good vibe, you know. And then I played, I played shows where there's a huge crowd of people that I felt like couldn't care less that I was even on the stage, you know. I might have been wrong, but I just didn't get a good uh, a good feeling off the crowd, you know. And that happens sometimes, but uh, you know, it's it's good. And playing theater shows, they're fun, but it's quite a crowd, you know. They're not going to go in there and act wild and hooping and hollering and stuff, you know. But, and then other times, you know, I play to a big crowd in a big bar or something, and they're, it's, you know, they're listening to the show with the band and everything. So you know, sometimes I'll be playing a place that I feel totally out of place in. I think, man, I wish I had my band. Just me and my guitar player up here in this huge place. And, uh, uh, but it went over. It, it it would go over well. So it 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 just depends. But you know, I feel real good about my crowds because at a certain point it got to where well, if these people are coming to the show, they're coming to hear us. So did you ever bomb it like? I know maybe early in the career or something, but as you started, you know, when you put out that 2001 album and you got the band and you're touring hard and you got up there and you, and you know that you're ready to roll. Did you ever just be like, oh, what the hell, what did I just do out there? Did you like go up and strike out ever? I've had, I've had shows that I've like, I could have done a lot better. I wish, I wish we had did better on that or, you know, and, as you go along, I mean, you're going to be, I, I don't really even get nervous going on stage anymore. Maybe just a little bit, but it's comfortable now, you know, especially if I got my band with me. And, but I mean, I used to, 
there's be, you know, I don't know whether you call it stage fright or just inexperience, but it was hard for me on stage. And I still don't think I'm very good at it, but uh, I'm not like an entertainer, you know. Then and why do you go on the, then why do you go on the road? Do you go on the road because it's your living and you need the revenue or do you go on the road because you still get that emotional t attachment to the audience and that adrenaline rush? Yeah, I, I love doing good shows and, you know, um, having a good crowd, you know, I like doing it. It's I, I feel better being on the road now. You know, I mean, the COVID has screwed everything up and we're still not back on track as far as shows. Right. And, uh, but I'm looking forward to things getting back on. And when it does get back, where would you say your, you would want your number of shows to be at this point in your career? Do you want to do a hundred nights a year? Do you want to do 50 nights a year? How many, what would be your perfect calendar for how many shows you would want to do in a given year on a tour or a couple tours in a year? Well, in 2019, we did uh, 106 shows, which was quite a few. The only other time was uh, I did more than that was I did 120 shows one year. And I never was like, I'm going to go do 300 shows a year or, two, or 200 or even anything like that. I figure uh, 90 Somewhere 80 to 100 shows is good. But, I mean, if you can just cherry pick your shows and make the same money, you know, 70, 60, 70 shows wouldn't bother me. I think I did about 55 shows last year. It was a lot slower. But things were getting, seeming like they were getting a little more normal. And... Uh, and that was very comfortable to do, but 80 to 100 shows is what I've always done. And I'm still ready to, to do that many shows. When you get home from the show, a, re a weekend run, you probably might play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe the occasional Sunday, and you get home, is it like, thank God that's over? Or are you like, it takes you maybe four or five hours and you're itching to get back on the bus and I've get out of the bus? I've been both ways. It's been, been a, uh, after a couple of days, you're ready to go back. You're ready to go back on the road. And then there's been times where, you know, like you said, yeah, glad that's over. You know, uh, just certain situations sometimes that you where you go do a show and you're like, man, I didn't really like it club or didn't like it crowd or whatever you know it just felt like i was in the wrong situation but that don't happen very often i guess i guess it just comes down to you know why like what is the biggest part of that that lifestyle that night that that library of music, the adrenaline of the crowd, there still has to be like this. I'm going to end this conversation by talking about you. I would assume aren't going to do a bunch of covers. Your crowd ain't there to hear Chris Knight do a Charlie Daniels band song. Okay. They're just not, you're going to sing Chris Knight originals. A lot of these originals were written 100% by Chris Knight. How much of being right here, this stage right here, which I'm sitting in this room, and all I can envision is me putting together a show where you come down here and have this intimate evening with Chris Knight and Brent Cobb and Adam, some guys that, you know, like you're, you're their hero, right? Like it would be amazing in this room. I've seen a lot of good shows in this room right here. Um, but what is it, your emotional connection to your song now? Is it, I've heard artists say, I hope I never have to play that song again. It was number one. It got ran through the washer so much. I had to do it so many nights in a row. Do you get like that with your songs? Or is there still this emotional connection to where you you can't wait to play that song again? No, I like playing. I've never gotten tired of playing Down the River or Becky's Bible or, or uh, 
even ain't even, ain't, yeah, ain't easy being me. You know, I just, uh, I just don't. I've actually had people comment that uh, they can't believe after 20 years that I still perform those songs the way that I do. You know, it's not like you're, I mean, I may have, I don't know what you call it, kind of, when you stand on stage and sing a song and you're really detached from the song, it's like, I mean, I got, I still got songs that I can't even hardly get through singing them sometimes, some nights, you know. Because the, the crowd takes over? No, because of my emotional attachment to the lyrics. You so know? you get so worked up yeah. over it. <clears throat> wow, that's yeah. awesome. That's freaking awesome. Yeah. That's where I wanted to go with that question is like, if you're at home and you're itching to get back out, it can't just be about being with the boys. It can't just be about signing an autograph or selling a ticket. It's got to be the that love of the music because if you're going to play those songs that your audience wants to hear and you're going to mix in the new ones and like even the new ones are awesome, you know, when they haven't heard them before. But that's where I wanted to go to end this conversation is that there has to be I, I, you, you just, the more I get to know you, you just come across as a real emotional person. I might be wrong, but your songs bring out so many emotions in the listener. And if people sat down and listened to the Chris Knight library, like I do a lot. I mean, I don't know if you ever been on my playlist, the foul life playlist on uh, Apple music, but it's got every Chris Knight song on it. And it's like, all right, there's another Chris Knight song and it's a story. I, I know you do. And I, and I don't say that for you to, you know, I'm always, I've always loved your music since I first heard framed. I told you back when I first, when I was in Ohio and a Kentucky boy named Walt Gabbard, who was, a, he's probably here. He's a big time Turkey hunter. He put that song on and I was like, and he's like, well, if you like this one, listen to this one. And then it was just, it was over for me. And it has been since that day. And then I remember where I was and I was up in Port Clinton, Ohio, driving around in this Ford truck and he played that. And I, I was just like, I'm in. And I've been a, a fan ever. So two decades, I've been a Chris Knight fan, right? And it, it just seems like the emotional connection to your song is we started this conversation with me saying most artists, whether it's Corey Michael or the guy that was singing in the booth today, they're intimidated to do your song. Because they can't do it how you did it. And that's why I feel in my little bit of music knowledge I have that the number one hits by other artists weren't there. Because there's the only reason that Montgomery Gentry was able to do it with um, She Couldn't Change Me was because you never released it. The Eddie Montgomery never heard you do it, I bet. <laughs> he may have heard like a work tape or something. But if there's not one artist, in my opinion, that's going to go get Rural Route, which is a genius song. Or it ain't easy be me, or framed, or down the river, or William, whatever you want me to say, any of your songs, and go. Oh, I'm gonna go put that on my next record because they're gonna get picked apart because the emotional attachment that you have with your music is why you don't get picked apart on it. Your crowd's going, "Oh my God, this is his life, this is him." And when Frank Liddell told me that he pulled up to the river with you and told me the story about being up in your neck of the woods. He says, no shit why this guy writes like this. This is his life. He lives this. And now there is some exaggeration. There's yeah. some storytelling. I know, like, I I love how you've done that too. But that's why I started this conversation of like, I don't think that a, a huge artist is going to be like, oh yeah, let's put a Chris Knight out cut on the uh, album because they can't do what you did with it 20, 30 years ago. That's my opinion. And that's why I wanted to see what your emotional attachment is to your music. Because in my opinion, in today's country radio, and people can take this for what it's worth to them, there's no legacies being built. There's a couple, maybe. There's a Chris Stapleton legacy being built. Zach Brown's on a different level. His musicianship and his band, different level. They just had a number one hit with the same boat. He's got 14 or 15 of them now. Four Grammys, maybe. But uh, for the most part, in my opinion, Chris Knight, in 20 years, we're not going to be going, man, you remember that shit we were listening to in 2022 on country radio? I'm still doing that with Merle. I still do that with Waylon and Vern Gosden and Don Williams, Chris Knight. That shit will be, Chris Knight will be played when I'm 90, listening to kids that are 20 at that time. Think about that. 
That is the emotional attachment that people gravitate onto that music and they never let go of it. They take ownership in the song. What's your Chris Knight song? Oh, it's Rural Route. Makes me cry every time I hear it. What's your Chris Knight song? Oh, it's I went across this bridge and I burnt that bridge down and I'm looking back through the smoke and flames. How many guys have lived that life? All of us. And when you hear those lyrics, you're like, holy shit, he wrote that about me. And they take ownership in it. That's the difference in what you've built and what a lot of these careers, and I'm not taking away any talent. I'm sure that all of these people are talented or trained or whatever, but they ain't Chris Knight. They're not writing like Chris Knight. And that's what's such a downer to me that the world of country radio didn't give it a chance back in 97, 98 when it would have been the biggest shit ever. It would have been unreal. And even Garth Brooks said it. I'm going to sing this song verbatim. And he never did it because he was intimidated by that song. And I'm not saying that Garth 100% that I know for sure because I don't know Garth Brooks. But you know damn well when he told that story that he really loved that song. And there's something kept him from doing that song. And it was because you did it too perfect. So take that for what it's worth. Thank you for being here. You are an absolute master of lyrics and songwriting. And one day, I promise you, I'm going to stick to my word. We're going to do an intimate evening with Chris Knight and friends here. And I'm going to have a slew of folks that you're their hero and that you've inspired that much. Is that fair? Can I do it? Yeah. You sure? Are you crying? No, I'm not crying. You're the man, Chris Knight. (laughs) Any closing words? Do you want to say anything to lead us out of here? I appreciate you having me on. For sure, it's good to finally meet you. Yeah, man. I'm so excited. Face face. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to come to some shows this year. Good. I can't wait. Yeah. Probably come up to Colorado. Yeah, Colorado. And I'm, we're going to, I think we're going to travel to, uh, we're going to drive way on the way to Idaho. Well, that's all back. out of my neck of the woods. So I'm going to come to the, some of those shows. Yeah. yeah so I about quit flying. So, you know, You're driving. I, I like to. I like to drive anyway. I got, you know, we tag team some, but I tell you, my road manager, he, he, uh, he drove all the way to Colorado and all the way back for the last time. It took us two days to get, to get out there and two days back. Yeah. We just did that too. We're road, we're road warriors as well. Yeah. It's, uh, I like being on the road some. Well, I'm coming to see Chris and I on the road. I hope you all do too. This Life Ain't For Everybody. Thank you, Jack Daniels. Thank you, Nashville Palace, Barrett Hobbs, Bobby Johnson, for hosting us this week during the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention right here in Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee. Just a little bit, about a mile, about an hour drive from Lynchburg, Tennessee. The home of Jack Daniels, where every single drop of Jack Daniels whiskey is made. That still blows my mind. It's sold in 167 countries, and every drop is made in Lynchburg, Tennessee. Think about how cool that is. That's thousands and millions and millions of gallons of Tennessee whiskey made in one spot. There ain't many companies that can say they make it all in just one spot. A lot of different companies like, you know, Budweiser, they got breweries all over the place. Not to say that their beer is not great. You're a Miller Lite guy, right? Right. Miller Lite. We've got to start drinking a Miller Lite, Bob Euchre. That's Chris Knight. Thank you, Jack Daniels. Thank you to the National Palace. Like I said, another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. I'm hoping to get Chris Knight back on the show from backstage at one of his shows this coming year for part four. Y'all check out the Chris Knight Library. It is freaking genius. Thank you. Or you know what? I'm not going to say that yet. I want to go out with Becky's Bible. Can I go out of this with Becky's Bible? Sure. This is Becky's Bible. Chris Knight. Thank you all.